0: The Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean, pastor of Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. And this podcast is all about helping you follow Jesus in the everyday, normal rhythms of life. And this this podcast is mainly for Sacred City Church, primarily for Sacred City Church. We want to continue to form um, disciples of Jesus who can engage critically um, the issues of our day, can make disciples in this culture, can think clearly can take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. And so this podcast is meant to serve that purpose. So we do a lot of different things on it. We talk about current issues. We talk about sermons that, I'm, that I've p- preached. We engage different books. <clears throat> we do all kinds of things like that. Um, and with me on the podcast today, I've got three of our men. I've got my pastoral assistant, Kevin Nor. Hey, guys. I've got our deacon of administration. Ben Mossback, Hey. And I've got our Deacon of Sacred City Youth,
1: Alex Tate. How's it going,
0: guys? And today, we are um, going to begin a conversation that could go many different podcasts. It's probably going to go many different podcasts. Uh, we got a listener who emailed us and said, Pastor Justin, <clears throat> I'd love for you to do a podcast on critical race theory <clears throat> now critical race theory it's been around since the 80s and but it's really gotten popular in the past couple of years and um, more than likely if you have um, been at least cu- a little bit culturally engaged in the past year or so, you've heard the terms critical race theory <clears throat> now, From the people that I've talked to, many of them know what John MacArthur says about critical race theory. They know what Eric Mason says about critical race theory. They know what Voddy Bakum says about criti- critical race theory. They know what Tim Keller says about critical race theory. They know what John Piper says about critical race theory. Um, that's not what I want to do this today. <clears throat> As Christians, we are told to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We're also told um, to make sure that no one takes us captive in Colossians 2.8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Mm. What that means is Christians need to be aware of different philosophies and we we need to make sure that we're not taken captive by them. But, um, and critical race theory is a philosophy, and we'll get into that. It's a theory. We'll we'll get into that. But I also want to make sure that as Christians, we don't think critical race theory is some kind of demonic boogeyman that we must fear and hide away from, okay? Mm -hmm. All truth is God's truth. We shouldn't be afraid of any philosophy because God's truth is all truth. And so we're meant to engage with philosophy and refute it and make it obedient to Christ and, uh, you know, demolish strongholds and make it obedient to Christ. That's what we're we're, we're called to do. So listen, if you have the truth, you shouldn't be afraid of any philosophy. And in the history of the church, there's been platonic philosophy that the church had to engage with and say, oh, they're right there, but they're wrong here. There has been Socratic philosophy. There has been, um, I mean, all kinds of different philosophies mm-hmm. um, that the church has critically engaged with throughout the years and in a non-technical term, has chewed the meat and spit the bones. <laughs> right? Like, okay, since we're all made in the image of God and all truth is God's truth, even unbelievers even atheistic unbelievers, they're going to stumble upon some truth occasionally. Um, But as Calvin says, it's because God's given us all the same world and he's, and guess what? Uh, You study scientifically certain parts of the world, you're going to come to know some truths because God made the truth in a certain way. But as Calvin said, the unbeliever sees the world kind of fuzzy and the, but they need the spectacles of scripture. So when we read, uh, you know, natural law, we read natural laws, or we read science, we need to read it through scripture because scripture is what helps us understand it. It, get, it brings things uh, into clarity a little bit more. <clears throat> so this is another a- aspect for the way the Christian can engage with culture. We can listen to philosophy. We don't have to be freaked out about it right now. We can listen to it. We can engage it. We can see where it's coming from. And then we can critique it through a biblical worldview. Mm. And um, just so you know, like, I'm not, we're not, this first podcast, we're not going to give it a full biblical critique. We will critique it a little bit. We're not going to give it a full biblical critique. What we're going to do is engage an original source, okay? Now, if you go and listen to somebody talk about critical race theory, that's a secondary source, okay? You're listening to somebody that's down the line. A primary source is a critical race theorist who's writing um, cri- <laughs> critical race theory, okay? And so we're going back, we're going to this huge book. It's like a 500-page book or so, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Uh, there's a forward by Cornel West. <clears throat> it is written primarily by um, legal and political activists promoting... Critical Race Theory. The book is literally called um, Critical Race Theory. It is edited by Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a professor of law at USCA and Columbia Law School in New York. Uh, Another guy, Neil Gutanda, professor of law at Western State University College of Law in Fullerton. Uh, Gary Peller, professor of law at Georgetown Law Center. And Kendall Thomas, a professor of law at Columbia School of Law in New York. So all uh, minorities... That are, that are either in the legal field, they're either professors of law, or they're lawyers themselves. <clears throat> and so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the this uh, original source and in their own words, let them kind of define the movement, define what this critical race theory is, and then we'll kind of talk about it. All right? And just so you guys know, we are some normal dudes uh, sitting around here today, Okay. And I'll tell you, this is not fun reading. This was not easy reading. (laughs) This was full of legal jargon, um, almost activist buzzwords. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. And that's the first thing you need to know. Let's just talk about this right away. Critical theory, critical race theory is coming out of Marxism. I don't have time to go into all of what Marxism was. Um, It was philosophy and also a failed economic uh, policy. But Marxism um, reduced humanity to classes. So let me just say it like this. Marxism puts on the spectacles of class and sees everything in the world through class. And so the reason... So basically, all they see in Marxism is oppressors and the oppressed. That's all there is. There is no middle ground, right? There is either the oppressed and the oppressors. <clears throat> and the only way to level the playing field, in a sense, is to flip the paradigm upside down and give all the power to the oppressors. And in Marxism, there's no, they don't believe in personal property. Everything should belong to the state collectively. It just, like, levels out. Uh, it's, it attempts to level out uh, personal property. And it's a failed economic system. It's it's created some of the worst dictators in the history of the world. It's created more um, genocide than probably... I don't know if it's any philo- uh, philosophical system, but pretty close to it. And it's just utterly failed, okay? Communism, socialism, Marxism, utter failures. But... There was a group of Marxists who believed that Mark. the reason Marxism failed was because these people were like indoctrinated in Western ideas of of hard work and meritocracy and different things you're going to hear about. And so what then like the family, like the family is a hierarchical institution. And so you couldn't just flatten society because you still have the family where the husband and wife and, and they're ordering their children and they're indoctrinating their children in certain ways and so in ways that could possibly be contrary to, um, Marxism. And so what they decided after Marxism failed and it was failed mainly at the state level and economic, they said what we need to do now is take the long, slow march through the institutions and push Marxism down through all of the kind of American or all of not just American it was it started over in uh, in Germany, I think, uh, through the through the institutions, because the goal, the end goal, was to get rid of the family. That's that's ultimately the end goal, because the family is a hierarchical institution, and you got to flatten that if you want to if you want a flat society. You've got got to get rid of that. So, basically, this works itself out for whatever. I don't even know. I'm I'm working off the top of my head right now, but it's been something like mm, seventy years, I think, since um, this kind of this kind of thinking has been and it's been catching on and working its way through. Legal institution, where now critical race theorists would be called cultural Marxists. Uh, Not necessarily economic, it's got some economic aspects to it, but they they believe in kind of the total totalitizing class system is actually race. So, race is the one thing that's the glasses they put on, and they see everything in the world through race. So that's where these guys are kind of coming from. Okay. It's, and, and what we're going to find out here is it's mainly this, this, uh, critical race theory has mainly started in, uh, the world of the legal world, the world of lawyers. Okay. In the world of, uh, of, Schools of law.
1: Yeah, go ahead. So before you get into the book, um, why do you think a lot of people are always going to these books and these big authors um, and preachers for information instead of just going to God's word by themselves? Well, or to these original sources themselves.
0: Yeah. So because most of us, one, we don't have the time to research it ourselves. Uh, we don't really, some, I hate to say it, like most of us don't really care. It doesn't affect us. If it doesn't affect us in our daily life, it's going to be really hard to get somebody to, to read something like we're reading right now. Yeah. And um, and so we want to go to a guy on YouTube or a path. I mean, listen, it, that's, this is why I'm doing this. We're going to give you my, my perspective and our perspective. And it's if we just, hey, man, I love that preacher. I love that preacher. And then we just easily go to him and listen to him, what he says about critical race theory, and we can take it for what it is. The problem is, here's here's one problem I think we have with it. Um, Our kids are getting critical race theory. They don't know it. They don't know what it's called. But they're getting it. Excuse me. When you're hearing, like, um, white privilege, white privilege is coming out of critical race theory. When you hear a lot of talk of uh, different types of um, oppression or hierarchy language or um, uh, institutional racism or structural racism, um, people repenting for their whiteness. You hear this kind of language that's going on in our society. That's all coming out of critical race theory, okay? And so it's one thing just to demonize it right away and go, oh, Marxism, easy, boom, bad. We, you can do that. The pro- one of the problems with it is they might be addressing something that is true. They're just coming at it from a wrong... They, like, they might be pointing at something that's actually a problem with society and needs Christian engagement and Christian thought, but they're not Christians, so they're not going to be accurate in their inset- assessment of it, and they're not going to be accurate in their um, the recommendations for how to fix it.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: they might be actually pointing at something that's real. Yeah, <clears throat> And so for us Christians, just to demit, dismiss it all, you know, flush it all down the toilet because it began with Marxist um, underpinnings and Marxist philosophy would be potentially to ignore injustice, right? Ignore something that the kingdom of God has an answer to, mm-hmm. right? That we've been maybe blind to before. Mm-hmm. And our kids are watching. And so if our kids are seeing some of the stuff that they're talking about actually play out where people are being mistreated because of their, their, uh, their, their color of their skin or whatever, and we just blanket it as demonic or whatever, or Marxist, then our, our kids might be looking and going, huh, mm-hmm. so then is Christianity is okay with this seeming injustice here? Yeah. Right? So it's important for us to thoughtfully engage with it, but most people don't have the time to, so it's easier just to click on and hear what some preacher says, and he just blasts it. And here's the deal. When you're preaching... You know who's in the room, and you know if you're preaching to a more conservative crowd or a more liberal crowd, and so you you might not say everything you need to say, and you might just come loaded for bear, and you might build a straw man argument and just knock it down and look really smart and look really articulate, but you're actually, that's just a straw man argument, and you're not actually engaging with the truths of the philosophy, right? Or you're not, let me sign it like this. Tim Keller, one of my favorite public theologians, he says, You should not um, debate someone or some philosophy unless you can articulate that philosophy better than that person you're debating, Mm -hmm. and put it in in the in the terms that he's going to use, and then critique it. So don't just build up a straw man argument about all the weak points. You know, what's actually the positives here? What's actually a good? How would that person that's that's actually a critical theorist? How would he actually describe his position? Once you can actually say that, now
1: critique it so just i just had a thought come in my mind um uh, if, if that's the case a lot of people aren't theologians so would they ever challenge any, anything if it if it comes from that point of view if they don't know everything more than someone else um
0: yeah maybe not and then then, then they should probably not post something on facebook <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right that's that's the whole point that, that i'm trying to make
1: So you're saying um, just, just Facebook or um, any argument?
0: Well, at any time you can engage, you can ask questions. Hey, what do you mean by that? That's the big thing. What do you mean by that? Okay. So people can use, I've used terms that are coming out of critical race theory that I didn't know were coming out of crit- critical race theory. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll just, I, I can apologize for that even now. Like, I've, in, in the past, I've, I've used the term anti-racism. And I thought, you know what? I like that term. Because it, it it it's talking about being more than just not racist, like a negative term. It's a positive, like I'm actually against any form of racism, and I want to I want to pr- promote equality as much as I can. I didn't know that that came laced with um, a lot of this critical race theory terms, and so it had a, it had a legal definition even that I wasn't aware of, and I didn't agree with all of the uh, presupposition. That presuppositions that came along with that mm. anti-racism yeah. racism philosophy. That Abram, Abram, whatever his name is, coats up there, I've read a few of his books. I don't uh, agree with his philosophy, um, but he, he talks a lot about how to be an anti-racist, and I completely disagree with his book and his philosophy because it's coming out of Critical, critical Race Theory. But, all of that said, um, we are going to engage the primary source here, and we're going to talk to them about uh, what is critical race theory. Again, it's coming out of Marxists. We, we already, uh, a Marxism is a godless worldview. It's an mm-hmm. atheistic worldview. Um, and so automatically we're going to say, there's, we already know that we're not in line with these guys, right? We're not in line with them. Uh, we're not in line with Marxism or socialism, and we're not in line with uh, any godless philosophy. We believe Jesus Christ is king over all. There's not one square inch of all creation that he doesn't say, mine, and we should bring every thought under subjection to Christ. So here's critical race theory. Here's kind of how it begins. Uh, sometime in the 80s, let me just, let me say it like this. When Martin Luther King um, and the civil rights movement accomplished their goals, Martin Luther said, we, he, he has a dream that men would be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin.
2: Mm.
0: What critical race theorists say is that the civil rights movement, the bar was far too low. Mm. The goal of the civil rights movement was colorblindness. That we would all just, we would just look past the color of skin, that race wouldn't matter at all, okay? The problem with that is our country was a large swath of our country. I'm not going to say like all of our country and every person, but a large majority of our country was racist, right? Um, Obviously, we used to be slaveholders, and then after that, Jim Crow. There was a lot of deep-seated racism, specifically in the South, but in other places as well. And then... The civil rights legislation takes place, right? Where it's no lo- its now illegal to be um, blatantly racist, mm. right? Well, I want you to so just think about this. Yesterday, this. Let me just do this. In, in this thought experiment. Yesterday, it was legal to be a racist, okay? And we believed in our hearts that black people were inferior to white people, okay? today we vote now that now racism in that way is illegal tomorrow you a black person steps into that court of law is that court of law now just there's a very high likelihood that that judge still has racist racist ideas racist ideologies in his head it's illegal now but he's still, the racism is still there. You mm-hmm. can't ne- necessarily, you can outlaw it in the court of law, but that doesn't make it just, right? That doesn't make it just. You still, and then so we've seen this in the history of law that black people were, even though it was, racism was illegal, you, they were still not getting a fair shake. They were, they were still not getting justice in, in the court of law. Think about that through every system of society. Yesterday, black people could not eat in this restaurant. He had signs out front that said whites only. That becomes illegal. If a black person shows up tomorrow in that store, are they going to get equitable treatment?
3: Probably not. The store owner is the same guy he was a couple of days ago. Right.
0: Store Now it's illegal. He can't do it. But more than likely. He can't do it blatantly. He can't do it blatantly. But more than likely, he could do it in a hundred different ways that are under the surface right? Yeah. Well, critical race theorists are dealing with that reality. They, uh, they've they gotten affirmative action. They've gotten into um, Yale and Princeton and Harvard, but they're looking around and all their professors are white. And all the authors of the books they're reading are white. And they're like, what is they still feel like they're like there's some nobody can say i don't like you because you're black but they can use different f- ways to
1: um not have you in the same circles
3: as them yes yeah. mm-hmm. at some point he f- he phrased it as if the people in those positions of power almost accepted those things like affirmative action or the the civil rights le- legislation as necessary evils like mm-hmm. okay what well, will accept it but whether that actually changed how they did things what they did who they were
0: mm-hmm. probably not yeah so there here's the deal these critical race theorists their whole goal is to change that they, so they are revolutionaries they i mean their goal isn't just to like have another stream their their goal is to like any revolution, overthrow the current legal order. Okay, and mainly these guys are operating. Now this is spread out to other areas, but the- it's beginning in uh, legal studies. That's where it's beginning, and it's beginning by redefining the definition of racism.
1: So, are you saying that it's? Are you saying that it's not okay for black people to be in certain circles? Are you saying that they're only? Trying to overthrow everything that's white.
0: No, okay. I'm not saying. I'm saying. I'm not saying both. I'm not saying either one of those things necessarily. So the goal is here. Okay, African Americans have made their way into these inst- this legal institution, Yale. I'm just going to use Yale as an Yale as example, except and they but they still feel discriminated against. The whole system seems to be set against them in some ways, okay? And though they can't say, well, this is, where's the definition of racism? Can we get this? Um, Okay, here it is right here. I'm going to read this. American ideologies about race were built in the 60s and 70s around an implicit social compact. This compact held that racial power and racial justice would be understood in very particular ways. Racial justice was embraced in the American mainstream in terms that excluded radical or fundamental changes to status quo institutional practices in American society. By treating the exercise of racial power as rare, and aberrational rather than as systemic and ingrained. So here's what they were doing. In the 60s and 70s, they were saying, everyone's not racist. Only these people on the extremes are racist. Mm. And both sides, the Black Panthers, they're racists. The Ku Klux Klan, they're racists. But all society's not actually dealing with this issue. It's just these crazies on the the far extremes. Now listen. Mm. The construction of racism from what Alan Freeman terms the perpetrator perspective restrictively conceived racism, here it is, as an intentional albeit irrational deviation by a conscious wrongdoer from otherwise neutral Rational and just ways of distributing jobs, power, prestige, and wealth. Okay, what he's saying here is in the 60s and 70s, racism was irrational and it was the extreme intentional abuse of, by, you know, what either white people against black people, mm-hmm. black people against uh, other races, right? And so the only thing that's racist in that view is something that was inherently like I hate you because of your black skin or I am trying to hurt you because of your black skin right it didn't um, it didn't include other uh, we could say softer forms mm-hmm. of racism or more under the cut under you know uh, less overt forms of racism and so they are defining racism and so they say basically from its inception mainstream legal thinking in the US has been characterized by a curiosity constricted understanding a curiously constricted understanding of race and power so they're they're critiquing the legal system's understanding of racism mm. they're saying the legal system only sees racism as blatant purposeful illogical acts against another race not other more subversive or possibly systemic or possibly cultural um, aspects.
2: So, um, just by way of conceptualizing it, would you say it's similar to, um, in Scripture, the Jews following the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, so they didn't stick a knife in somebody necessarily, but they'd still speak poorly about each other? I'm thinking... What what I was getting when I was looking at this, I was thinking about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you know, you have heard it is said. So in Mm -hmm. this case, don't commit racism, you know, don't don't blatantly be racist. But I can imagine Christ saying, no, you know, it's it's the heart behind it, right? But the law can't control the heart.
0: Mm Hmm. Yeah. But I think what these guys are saying is. the movement in the 60s and 70s was working off a faulty presupposition mm-hmm. and their goal was inadequate their goal was just to eliminate the extremes on the left or the right mm-hmm. the extreme forms of racism yeah. it actually couldn't get like you're saying couldn't get to the heart and didn't even try to get to the heart and so and the the legal the legal system therefore is inherently broken mm-hmm. Okay, now that, that I'm not saying I agree with that. They're making this claim. They're, they believe that there is more inherent forms of racism that are kind of under. We, they're literally saying you can't get around race consciousness. They're saying race is a construct that we that our society has constructed. It's, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily quote unquote real,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but it's a construct that our society has, has functioned in and therefore it's affected everybody. So the goal, the old goal of the civil rights movement to be colorblind, that's an inadequate goal.
3: I just want to ask something. Are they saying that was the, that was a narrow goal of the civil rights movement or that was the narrow bare minimum outcome to kind of, Appease the civil rights movement and and yes. move on. Both, both, okay. both.
0: Yep, both. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're saying both. They're saying it was a narrow goal. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a first step. It was the first step. But then, the legal system took that first step and, and called it good. All right, mm-hmm. we're done. Mm. We're no longer racist anymore. Even though, there was all of these unjust laws still in the books, right. and even and their their idea um an incomplete concept of race. Like like a, a human being, technically, because of the system we grew up in, can't be colorblind. It's physically impossible. Like you're denying reality. There are realities to being black and there are realities to being white, and the goal of colorblindness is not sufficient. And therefore they're arguing for um what's the term that they use in here racial consciousness mm-hmm. or a race consciousness yeah. like they're overt about it we should be we should be talking about race we should be um seeing things through racial lenses and that's what they're, i mean the whole thing is and this is where one of the areas where i think they go way they go way wrong is they narrow just like marx narrowed everything down to class where were you, where you uh, the proletariat or the bourgeois society, where are you at? They make everything about race. Race is the determining factor of everything in our society. I think that's where, and so.
1: But it's not necessarily saying that everything they're saying is wrong, but it's just based from a, uh, a point of view of, like you said, everything is, is about the race. From the way you walk in the room, from how you leave the room, there's something in there about race.
0: Everything is about race in this. And, and, and now, here's the deal, too. So, and though, now let me just talk about this. So, this is called critical race theory, but critical theory is a, even even bigger than just critical race theory. So now, inside critical race theory, they smuggle in. It's not just about race. It's about gender. It's about sexual orientation. It's about all of these things. And so um, I am not critiquing the, the movement yet. yet. So um, here's where you're going to hear this word a lot as you're reading this. I, I'm, let, me, let me read it. Um, Critical race theories, engagement with the discourse of civil rights reform stemmed directly from our lived experience as students and teachers in the, Na- in the nation's law school. You, in this introduction, you hear a lot about lived experience. It's a lot about, this is how we felt. This is what we experienced. Mm. And they, they put a lot of weight on their own personal experience. And um, you hear this over and over and over. You can't deny a person their lived experience. Well, actually, that's up for debate. Because a person's lived experience, there's, there's several aspects to your lived experience. There's what happened, and then there's your interpretation of what happened. And your interpretation of what happened sometimes is wrong, sometimes is skewed. And that's always the case. If you're married, you know, you, ha- you go to your wife, I said this, I said this, I said this. Nope, this, you know, and she straightens you out, right? And your response to her, what you thought she said or what you thought was going on might have been wrong. You might have responded out of some lived experience of your past, right? And so you brought that into the present. And so over and over and over in this theory, they talk about, they really value a person's lived experience. You can't deny them their lived experience. And that's, that's a little dangerous because we should always be able to debate a person's Lived experience and challenge their lived experience. We want to listen to them. We want to engage them. But my interpretation of events is not always correct. Mm-hmm. I'm limited by my own scope. I need other people to help me see myself and, and so. So immediately as I was reading this, this is one of the things that I kept. Um, I kept saying, "Oh, that's a that's a trigger word. I need hot, I need to underline mm-hmm. that. That's a key key concept that I keep coming back to." Um, lived experience so one of their one one of their lived experiences was at Harvard when a prominent African American critical race theorist moved to take another job at a school in Oregon and then Harvard chose to hire white professors to fill his position even though black people were really upset about it and they were like no we need black scholars here we need black legal scholars and this is what he says Although, although those of us who were agitating for hiring teachers of color knew we didn't accept the kinds of justification the Harvard administrators offered, we also knew that we lacked an adequate critical vocabulary for articulating exactly what we found wrong in their arguments. It was out of this intellectual void that the impetus for a new conceptual approach to race and law was based. Our critique of ideas like colorblindness, formal legal equality and integrationism are linked to their institutional manifestations as a rhetoric of power in the schools we attended and the workplaces we now occupy. Okay, here's what they're getting at. Harvard said, we're not going to hire black professors because there's no black professors that are qualified for this position. So think of it like this. There's no 4.0 Harvard, har, black Harvard students that have graduated and they're ready for this position. There's nobody out there. So, would you guys rather have a B student Harvard black professor or a student Harvard white professor? And they're like, and the, and the black people are like, uh, the, the black one who's, who's got a B, a B student, right? But Harvard is like, no, we want the best. They're, they're based on what's called a meritocracy. Yeah. If you're the best, you get the job. These critical theorists now are pointing at the idea of meritocracy as rigged too. Now, if you're a mer- here's so, the di-
1: so would that always be the case if um, due to education of black people of slavery and all those things how they would never be able to be in those in those spaces are that educated or that qualified or be able to break down or um, vocabulary wise and things like that, like we, like you were just reading from.
0: No, I don't think it's the case that it would never be the case. African-Americans are, they, you know, they're inherently just as intelligent as anyone else, obviously. And they have the ability. And there are superb black scholars. Um, In the 80s at the time, there was less of them. Now, there's a lot of different reasons. Some of it's racism. Some of it's culture. Some of it's... You, you know you ask a young man what do you want to be do you want to be a lawyer or do you want to be a basketball player do you want to be a lawyer or do you want to be something else you know sometimes it's just goals in life so it's not inherently that 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 why there's not more black uh, law, law scholars is not necessarily inherently racist but it could be right it could be a, a, re- a response to that right it possibly could so that's what they're but they're getting at we don't have When they said, hey, we're just a meritocracy, the best get the job, we don't have a rebuttal for that. We don't know how to engage that argument. Because guess what? We feel like we need representation. We need black scholars. We need black legal scholars. So their response is to kind of say that the idea of meritocracy itself is a form of institutional racism. So here's the idea. If white people are, so let just think about it from the top down. If white people are making the curriculum, if white people are writing the tests, is there somehow, is there something inherent in being white that as you write the test and the curriculum, it, it prefers white students to black students? Okay. They say yes. Critical race theory says yes. That, the reason, some of, that some of the reason why black students aren't doing as well as white students is because there's institutional racism. The people at the top are all white. The, te- you know, the, the people writing the tests are all white, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's their, that's their argument. That's part of their argument. Okay? Um, another argument that they make, that the legal system, many of us think that the legal system is just um, neutral, politically neutral, right? We, we, we think of politics happens in the executive branch, politics happens in the legislative branch, politics happens there, but politics doesn't actually happen in the judicial system. Even uh, the Supreme Court, out front of the Supreme Court, Lady, Lady Justice, is it Lady Justice? She's blindfolded, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She's blindfolded. She can't yeah. see color. She can't see. They're saying that's all bullcrap. They say this, to argue that the legal system is not simply or mainly a biased referee of social and political conflict whose origins and effects occur elsewhere. On this account, the law is shown to be thoroughly involved in constructing the rules of the game, in selecting the eligible players, and in choosing the field on which the game to be played. Drawing on these premises, we began to think of our project as uncovering how law was a constitutive element of race itself. In other words, how law constructed race. Racial power, in our view, was not simply or primarily a product of biased decision-making on the part of judges, but instead the sum total of the pervasive ways in which law shapes and is shaped by race relations across the social planes. Laws produced racial power not simply through narrowing the scope of, say, the anti-discrimination remedies, nor through racially biased decision-making, but instead through myriad legal rules, many of them having nothing to do with the rules against discrimination. They continued to reproduce the structures and practices of racial domination. So what they're saying is, and I've done a podcast on this once before, that the law courts Removed the language of race, but replaced it with other terms that, in legal terms, people still knew they were talking about race. Mm -hmm. Right? Inner city, underprivileged, um, whatever. Urban. What? Urban. Yeah, urban. Mm. Uh, But everyone knew that these laws still Mm
3: -hmm.
0: were going to... um, Affect black people or people of color at a at a greater rate than than white people. Okay. Um, so that's kind of where this began. All right. This began in the 80s in this legal in the this legal world, and there, these theorists were set about to change the way law works and institutional law. Uh, and constitutional law and all kinds of different things the, the legal system works and their purposely their goal is to favor African Americans that's that's their goal their goal is to overturn the system and change um, and change this you know the goal of being colorblind to nope, we need to and now we need to see um, the racism that's in our Potentially in our systems.
1: So what was the uh, spark before? um, Actually, what was the spark that just made it happen in uh, 1980s instead of um, before that? Well, it seems like, at least from, from his writing in this, that it
3: was those maybe couple decades that went by from the end of the civil rights era where legislation starts getting put in place to deal with those things to time going by actually experiencing the results of those things to now early 80s we're sitting in these legal classes and seeing and experiencing these things and it's different than what was maybe hoped for or anticipated or we think should be the outcome yeah
0: I'm trying to bring this legal language down to, down to street to brass tacks here imagine it like this okay everything's been now it's racism is illegal Yep. Blatant, purposeful racism is illegal. Yep. But now I get into this system, but I still feel like I just can't get ahead. Nobody's calling me the N-word, but I can't, why can't I get, why can't I get
1: ahead? 15 steps back. It r- seems r- like
0: All the time. I'm never going to be able to get ahead. So what's going on? Now listen, this is what they say. The appeal to colorblindness can thus be said to serve as part of an ideological strategy by which the current court, and he's talking about the Supreme Court, obscures its active role in sustaining hierarchies of racial power. So they're claiming the Supreme Court is racist, but they're using um, colorblindness to hide their real agenda of being racist, okay? We believe that critical race theory offers a valuable conceptual compass for mapping the doctrinal mystifications which the current court's has developed to camouflage its conservative agenda. Now, that brings up another point. We should, we should note here that these are not unbiased, uh, middle-of-the-road Christians writing this, okay? Right away in the beginning, it says, this is a movement of the left. And when it says left, it says liberal. This is not just Democrats, this is not political Democrats here. This is, this is, they, are, they are separating themselves from Democrats and Republicans, mm-hmm. and they're far left to the left of, of even Democrats. We're talking about Marxists. We're talking about socialists. We're talking about revolutionaries that want to flip the whole system of the United States on its head, okay? And so here they believe, they even talk about Clarence Thomas, who's African-American on, on the court, and, but a conservative that he that he is part of the problem, you know that he's he's actually part of the problem.
2: <clears throat> and they make it clear a number of times that the left, as we know it, isn't left enough. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he he thinks the left all they want to do is purport colorblindness. Mm-hmm. And that's not actually going to, to accomplish their goal. And mm-hmm. so they're far left of that. <clears throat> so here's what it says here. Remember when I, we were talking about the meritocracy and mm-hmm. the our critiques of racial power reveal how certain conceptions of merit merit, again. Think about the best basketball player starts. The best student gets valedictorian. Mm-hmm. The best, whatever, right? Merit means our country, we think of our country as a meritocracy. That's how I think of it. I'll be honest. That's how I think of it. The best guy gets the job. The best sprinter wins state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're critiquing that idea. It says this, our critiques of racial power reveal how certain conceptions of merit function not as a neutral basis for distributing resources and opportunity, but rather as a repository of hidden race-specific preferences for those who have the power to determine the meaning and consequences of merit. So, simply put, they're saying the game is rigged against African Americans. And we're pointing at that. And, and this is all-encompassing. The game the financial game, the housing game, the religious game, the educational game, the legal game, everything is rigged against african americans. so the que- so from what we've just said guys, that was 50 minutes of just <laughs> of just literally talking about this first chapter of what they said. We haven't really critiqued it, we haven't really said what's good about it, what's bad about it. what are your thoughts?
1: Send something, cause I'm ready to jump into the next one.
0: <laughs> send something, is that what you say? Oh, send me. Yeah. What are your thoughts?
2: I'm just curious. This seems like a hot mess. Um, in the the first part of the essay, uh, where is it? Hold on, before we before we get into the hot mess,
0: <laughs> I want us to do this. Christians with a gospel centered worldview. The first question I want us to ask, what can we affirm mm-hmm. okay, so we're gonna say, what can we affirm what do we need what do we need to critique mm. right what do we need so we can say what do we need to affirm what do we need to reject? what do we need to critique yeah, okay, so from this, what do you think we can affirm
3: mm. i think I think we can affirm that the the goal or result of mere colorblindness isn't adequate or isn't not that it's not enough but it it doesn't do justice to what is actually going on there maybe if um, if I would say
0: I would agree it's not adequate
3: yeah if the goal is just to not be blatantly racist that I think we yeah we can affirm that that's not enough yeah
0: and and we know that as an employer i might not deny this guy overtly because he's black but i might have prejudices against him and i could say i deny you because your references don't check out but mm-hmm. i could still be doing that because he's black i just looked for another excuse mm-hmm. right so the reality of race and race is a social construct. We're all, we all come from Adam and Eve, man. We're all, we all come from Adam. It is a social construct, but it's been used in such a weaponized way in American society that we have to deal with it. Now we have to work through the implications. I would also say that there are, they're pointing at a real problem.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. They're pointing at a real problem. Um, you know we know right one of the reasons we founded this country right it's taxation without representation we didn't want the king in our business he wasn't he wasn't representing us we didn't want him. there is something too true about representation that we want we want some people that represent our values in our in government right and so there is some truth to if african americans don't feel like they're adequately represented then they're probably not getting a fair shake in some in some aspects, right? Also, um, this is a hot, I know systemic racism, the concept of systemic racism is a hot button issue because one, we, we mean a lot of, when people use that term, they might mean a lot of different things. Here's what we mean when we talk about it. Um, you can build an organization that perpetuates injustice, And therefore, and injustice, it could be, you know, racist, and racial injustice. And therefore, that system needs to be reformed. Mm -hmm. Okay? There might not be anyone in that organization that's actually racist. But their policies could be prejudicing Mm -hmm. certain classes of people or certain races of people, whatever. And that needs to be evaluated and it needs to be adjusted. Now, one very clear um, example of this that I've pointed to in the past that most people were, have not been aware of and except in the last year that's been brought attention to is the idea of, of redlining.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Redlining was a, <clears throat> a racist, I'm just going to say it was a racist policy where it, it denied people of color Access to mortgage loans in certain Neighborhoods so the banks Would literally now the, here's, here's how the banks Couched it Africa, And some of this was racist And some of this was a result Of oppression in our society They said we can't Trust black people to pay their mortgage Okay they, 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 We don't believe they're trustworthy they don't have good enough jobs They don't have goodnesses. Now a lot, Some of that was just a repercussion of You know having all their stuff taken at, at different times, if you know anything about the wall, the black Wall Street massacre in Oklahoma. But what they said is this neighborhood, they would draw a red line around this neighborhood and say, like, um, this is where we're going to. I can't remember if it's the red line was this is where they can buy houses or they can't buy houses in this neighborhood. OK, mm-hmm. and then you get so then there's only certain places that black people could buy, buy uh, houses in. All right, so then all these black people, houses, people of color, in this one neighborhood, right? Well, then that redlining becomes illegal. It still kind of happens, but we root it out. Federal government, people, they root it out. They, they, um, it's a sin. It's wrong. It's illegal. But that becomes illegal, right? But guess what? You still have basically segregation. Jim Crow laws have been deemed illegal, They were trying to do it with red... Basically did the same thing with redlining, got around it through Mm -hmm. different language, couching it in financial terms and stuff like that. But you still basically had segregation. Well, now we found that out. We deemed that illegal, but guess what? We don't have segregated neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. We have neighborhood... Or we don't have. We do have segregated neighborhoods, right? We don't have integrated neighborhoods. Well, what did the government do? The government didn't go in and give all these people that were... Redlined the opportunity to buy houses in new neighborhoods. They didn't give them money back or whatever. They didn't, they didn't do anything to promote justice. They just made it illegal. And now they're all living in these basically segregated neighborhoods that's going to, and literally, that's producing some of the problems. that we, The George Floyd situation, that was a notoriously redlined neighborhood. Mm. You know, from 30, whatever it was, 30, 40 years ago. So <clears throat> when we talk about systemic... Injustice, that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about evil white men in the back room making red lines around neighborhoods. We're talking about that. Maybe that was how it originally started city planners and everybody doing this. But we, decades later, it's basically still going on Mm -hmm. because of the system that was created. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so there's not one person, a racist, we say, we call him to repentance. Mm -hmm. But this is something structural. This is something in, in systems and banking policies and law mm-hmm. and all these different things. So I think we can point to that and we can say that's injust- that's unjust.
2: Yeah.
0: God hates um, when, when people put the thumb on the scales in the old testament, unbalanced weights mm-hmm. it, it, like injustice he hates injustice. Mm-hmm. So we can say, okay, I think they're pointing to something here that is true.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? Or that we we can see it. Yeah. There is there is some injustice mm-hmm. here. <clears throat> Um, now, and we can also say that, can I, I don't know what do you guys think about this? Is racism? So is that we we talk about that that's, that creates a ra- there is a difference between racialized policies and overt racism. <clears throat> they argue a lot about the definition of racism here versus like overt calling someone, you know, an N-word, just, you know, uh, just literally saying, I'm doing this because you're a black person. That's racism. But their idea of racism is almost, I don't even know how to define it. Did they ever define what they thought, what, what racism was? They defined what it wasn't, this well, this, they define the civil rights movements, but they define what they thought it was.
2: I don't know if they did specifically. So I I would I would affirm that
0: racism can be more than just overt, bigoted, um, irrational. That's the big term. Mm-hmm. So what do what do they mean by that? If if I just deny you occupancy to my apartment because you're black, that's irrational. You might be, you might be a PhD making $100,000 a year or something like that, right? It's irrational for me to do that. So they're like, clearly that would be racist. But if I deny you based on you know, the school you went to or socioeconomic background, I'm, I'm, I'm actually just denying you because you only make $14 an hour. I'm not doing it because you're black but they say that because we're a racialized society and we see everything through race. If you see a black guy who makes 14 dollars an hour and a white guy who makes 14 dollars an hour, who are you going to have who are you going to rent to? And they're 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 basically saying is white people are going to choose the white guy every time. Mm-hmm. That's the system's rigged. That's basically what they're saying. I don't agree with that. I think well actually, you know what? I would almost say, without Jesus, I maybe I agree with that. I think race is a big deal in our society, and I think I think maybe without Jesus, you know what I mean. All I care, all I care about is the guy pays his rent, right? All I care about is the guy pays his rent. But in our society, I might be looking well, who, who's more likely to pay his rent here? Mm-hmm. And I think a racialized society would say, I think this white guy is. Mm-hmm. So I think I think they're. I think there's some merit to that. I think there's some merit to this idea that racism is more than just irrational, overt um, actions. It's more than that. But, okay, is there anything else to affirm?
3: I think I could agree with the this kind of realization or, or whatever it was of... Um, here we've always we've always thought or assumed that law is objective and not political and not mm. about power and, and all of this. It's 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 the good steady objective thing that, that we need to make sense of all of this. But maybe it's not. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's not that. Maybe it is, maybe all of those branches of the government are hand in hand and influenced by one another and not separated like they claim to be or we want them to be. Yeah, I would say we want it to be. Right. We think it should be.
0: But it's not. And I think we, as <clears throat> as people who <clears throat> are Christians, I think we, we would have to admit that because we have seen that past presidents when they can't get their agenda passed into law through the legislative branch they have weaponized the supreme court Mm -hmm. and made it political Mm -hmm. to pass their own agendas so homosexual marriage only happened the majority of americans were against homosexual marriage the only reason it happened was because of a burger and the supreme court the supreme court a liberal supreme court chose to Uh, Read something into the read a right into the Constitution that was not there, and reinterpreted the the Constitution to you know that homosexuals could now get married. So we see them, we see that that's a political move, right? And so I'd have to say we'd have to admit that um, it should. I would. So here's what I would say. I would say the law should not be influenced politically, but I think it is. Mm And and so for me, as a Christian, I would say, therefore, it needs to be reformed. We need to be constantly reforming our laws and mm-hmm. all these different things. But here's what we can, re- here's something that I think we should outright reject. And they, they say, it's political. Let's, they basically they are saying, since it's political, let's go political. And, ev- and this is Marxism. Everything is political in Marxism. And so these are activists, these are far left activists trying like they're here in the legal system trying to create social change. That's exactly what they're doing. So they're not saying let's get to some kind of let's get politics out of law. They're saying since politics are in law, let's just go full political and let's get our agendas let's just ram it down people's throats through the through the justice system.
1: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> and um and they kind of are. Mm. They kind of are. That's
1: kind of. And it just seems like there's, there's so much that um, a lot of us can agree where there's error and there's flaw throughout this um, book and this article that we're going through. Um, but what would it look like to be able to renew some of these things from a gospel-centered lens? And I think uh, a lot of people, of course, aren't gospel-centered. Um, and if they are gospel-centered, um, there's areas where um, they're not looking in the mirror in certain areas in their life. And um, that's why a lot of these things continue to happen on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah. So I've had, the like, I had fed several meetings this past year with some older folks in our church who came to me and they said, Justin, can we just stop talking about race? Can we just stop talking about race? I'm colorblind. And... I understand why they say that. I understand the worldview. That was kind of the Martin Luther King worldview. But our society has kind of moved, like critical race theory has got a hold in our society, and that's not the goal anymore. And colorblindness can also be an excuse to not look and see injustice that's still happening. Mm. Because we say, hey, we're colorblind, and so... Well, if you're colorblind, then you don't real you're not looking out there and seeing, you know, some of the injustices that are out there, right? That are happening to maybe people of color, or you potentially could be missing those things. So the goal isn't colorblindness. And I would even say scripture's goal is not necessarily colorblindness. God wants a people of every nation, tongue, tribe, and yeah. you know, ethnicity in the new heavens and new earth. So that means he's noticing that there's people, there's different people there. So Maybe we need a maybe we do need a little bit uh, of a you know race consciousness um, but again <clears throat> okay so so there there are some things that we can affirm about this now some things that we we can outright reject one, it's a godless worldview that it appeals to nothing outside the system, so we appeal to God to change hearts of racists and make them into lovers of God and lovers of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so the goal of the Christian is not to be not racist. It's to be lovers of my black brothers and sisters, yeah. lovers of yeah. people's, people of color, yeah. You know, developing relationships and becoming brothers in the church. Now, here's the deal. We appeal to God to do that. Like through the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, we appeal to God. Since these are Marxists, they have a closed system. They're only worried about what happens on this earth. Mm -hmm. So they have to appeal to the things of this earth to fix their problems. Mm. Well, what's the most powerful thing on this earth to fix their problems? Politics. Politics is how they wield power, right? Politics, how they get stuff done. And so theoretically, they could be pushing, they could be making things more unjust, but they don't necessarily care because their only goal is... Uh, To flip the system in favor of African Americans. Mm. That that's and well, not their only goal. That was their only goal, but now that goal has been co-opted by gender and sexual identity Mm. and sexual and all these different all these different goals as well. So one, we reject the system outright as godless, and so um, politics is not our primary. We're involved in politics. Politics is important, but Jesus and the gospel. Are who we appeal to to solve this racial racial issue. Okay, so we can reject that. Um, <clears throat> we can also reject some of their um, some of their prescriptions mm-hmm. for, for different things. Um, some of the ways that they they want um, they view race as the primary factor. A, so we talk a lot about, are you Christian first or are you white first? Are you Christian first or are you American first? They would reject that and they would say, you are white first. You are black first. You are Mexican first. You are, that, that, like that's how they start. They start with this is primary. This is the one thing. And then from that, then there's the secondary categories they offer. You are a black man you are and then so we get these what we call identity politics okay mm-hmm. based on your identity well, who are you what's your identity well i'm a black man okay and then and then they 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 have a hierarchy of basically a hierarchy of um marginalized people and so in this hierarchical system the most marginalized person is an African Amer- i think—I think right now is an African American lesbian woman. Supposedly, an African lesbian woman is the person in society who's most marginalized. She's, she has le- the least voice in all of society. Now that might be different now. It might be, it might have become the black female who identifies as a male and is transgender because that one's even, that's Mm -hmm. even crazier. So that might be the new, the new person. So we just, we just wreck, we, we, we reject that concept of identity. We reject that, that we're primarily Christians first. Secondarily, we are black, white. We are male, female in the, made in the image of God. Still, we are also affected by being a mother and father and, American and all these different things, but primarily we're we're Christians.
1: I think, too, that you hit on too is like we're not taking away that you're black or you're white because even scripture talks about tongue and tribe. And I think a lot of people always try to, you know, take that away and say, oh, you're just a Christian and, you know, now you're colorblind, which is false. Yeah. So it's false. And I think there's so many people that just need to, um, I know it's important to, you know, read what a lot of top scholars say, but what does scripture have to say about a lot of these individual topics? And I think a lot of people, Go to the scholar instead of scripture, Mm. um, and they lose the focus um, in that. Yeah. So, um,
0: and how can the gospel uh, redeem the situation? Now, again, we've already appealed to it. We think black and white need to be reconciled in the kingdom of God. We think that's we think Jesus Christ and His King Kingdom is the answer. That white people do need to repent for any racism that they hold in their heart. Um, Black people need to repent for any racism we hold in our heart, that we need to offer forgiveness for one another, right? Like, um, don't hold me accountable for something my great, 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 great grandfather might've done. I have no idea. I don't think my grandparents ever owned slaves. We were poor, poor, poor in, in Alabama, you know? And so we were indentured servants ourselves, but, um, I am not inherently guilty because of what the rest of my race have done, though I do repudiate it and I do acknowledge it, and it was sin, right? Mm -hmm. So black people need to forgive white people for that history of racism, right? And we need to own it. And Christians even specifically because— we were we did not see how the gospel informed race early on in this country we rejected it we weren't Christian enough and so we need to we need to admit that we had again segregation we created this this divide in churches white people created this divide in churches mm-hmm. when we kicked black people out of our denominations and they had to form their own churches and so the reason we have a racialized Sunday morning you know, my, you know, like mostly black churches and mostly white churches is because of what we, our ancestors did in the past. Or maybe not ancestors, our Christian ancestors, right? Christian forebears did in the past. And that's shameful and that's hurtful. And so the gospel brings us to reconcile with our black brothers and sisters and all people of color. And so we want, we should want to create a church that is diverse. We should be wanting to make, a, make disciples of all nations.
1: Right? I think it's good that you hit on that because um, as you said, like our ancestor Christian brothers and sisters that kicked blacks out of the church, um, you know, there was sin in that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people think because, you know, you're Christian, you're, you don't fall short or you don't sin, um, but they even lost the focus themselves and, you know, clung on to whatever the world was was doing at that time to be accepted or whatever they were looking for. Um, but you hit on, like, we, we need to be able to redeem that and, and there needs to be renewal so our churches can come together mm-hmm. and worship the, the God and King that we all believe in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we need to be really careful that we don't propagate um, racialized cultural perceptions in our own church. So this is going to be a little bit stereotypical, but for the most part, white people worship a little more reservedly, right? And people of color worship a little more expressively. You know, they they a little more loud, a little more, little more clapping, a little more moving around, a little more amening from the, from the congregation. And though that might bother a white person, they might think that person's being a showboat, that person's being too expressive, they're drawing attention to themselves. Well, that you don't know what's in the heart of that African American. That African American can be like, well, most of the time, African American, you know, people of color, when they're being expressive, it means they believe it, right? And and you sit in there quiet. To them, in their mind, they think you don't believe it because you're you ain't saying nothing and you're quiet. Yeah. These are cultural differences. All right. This is racialized differences. Now, a, a white person could go up to a black person in a church and say, Hey, you're distracting me. That's that's really bothering me. Would you quit that? Now, is that racism? The white person would go, "Absolutely not. That guy's just distracting me." But what he's what he doesn't realize is he's actually critiquing a piece of that person's kind of racial heritage or racialization of the way their culture expresses things, right? Mm-hmm. And so for that person, they actually perceive that as racism.
1: And definitely they're only Couple of black people in the church or whatnot. You yeah, know? and be, especially yeah. if
0: it's only a couple of black people in the church, they get re- rebuked like that. It feels like you're rebuking them because they are black, because that comes with being more expressive or whatever. You know, it's this is. I know it's a little, um, um cliche or whatever, but but it happens.
1: But I, I think it's a great example because that's what uh, pieces of why there's separation, right? Um, because you know, oh well, this church isn't expressive, and they're not, you know. Um, letting me praise and worship. So I'm going to go over here where I feel more accepted, where I can do, where I can mm-hmm. praise and worship, yep. where I feel comfortable. So I think that's really good how you hit that on.
0: So, okay. So, first podcast on critical race theory dealing with primary source. This document, um, we have realized some areas where we can say, okay, I think they're onto something here. I think they're pointing to something that could be that we need to be aware of, that Christians need to be thinking about and be aware of. There's some huge pieces in it that we can just outright reject and say we need to be really careful here. Christians need to be really aware and push back against this. And then there's some areas in here that, you know what, the gospel is actually the answer. The gospel is the thing that could restore this and could renew this and could bring some racial healing uh, to our society as a whole and to our churches specifically and uh, possibly to our neighborhoods. So that is uh, the first podcast on critical race theory. If you could email me, Justin at justindeedsacredcitychurch.com, I'd love to hear your thoughts, love to hear how you have heard this, uh, what you learned, any questions that you've got. We can be doing, we'll do some follow-ups um, from this podcast, maybe engaging with, you know, the some of the other critiques that we talked about, the Vadi Bachum, the, the Tim Keller, the John Piper, where they all stand on it. And we'll, we'll deal with some of those other aspects as well. So hopefully you learned something today. And remember, all truth is God's truth. So we love you. God bless you. Talk to you soon.